and welcome to Valley. <clears throat> My name is Maddie. If I haven't met you yet, I am one of the teachers here. And as always, I always get so excited. The opportunities that we have to open up God's word and frankly, let him blow our minds. I just feel like tonight with this scripture, he's going to blow our minds. So if you weren't ready for that when you walked in, get ready for that because that is going to happen. Um, but one thing that I always like to do when I speak is to just take a moment of silence. So if you wouldn't, wouldn't mind, close your eyes. I think this just helps allow to kind of recenter ourselves. We already sang a worship song, but there maybe is still just some chaos or anxieties going on in your heart or in your mind. So just take a moment, lay those at the feet of Jesus. Father, we are here to hear from you, to learn from you. I ask that you would illuminate these scriptures that we read tonight. We know that you have the power to transform our hearts and our lives. So Father, we are ready for it. We're expectant for it. And we are so thankful to be in your presence. In your name, amen. Amen. So... Tonight's passage, as we continue through our series through Matthew, is one of those passages that I feel like is just loaded and is just glowing. Ironically, we are speaking about the transfiguration, and Jesus will literally be glowing on a mountainside, but we will get to that in a minute. But when I think of the breadth of Scripture, the whole story of Scripture, there's just kind of key passages that I think really stand out. There's some passages that you're like, okay, yeah, that was a story, or this text is just transitioning from one instance of Jesus interacting with people to another. But this passage is one of those that I think just really stands out on the page and just, like I said, is gonna blow our minds. So we're going to take a lot of time to really unpack it. It's really deep, it's really rich. It points to so many other passages and parallels in the rest of scripture. And we're gonna look at it all today. But one thing, one illustration that I think will be helpful for us is the idea of a tapestry. Now, I have an image of a tapestry and the illustration here, something that you can think about when you're thinking about the Bible, is you have on the left side the front side of the tapestry, on the right side is the back side. And on the left side, this tapestry, very well woven together, knit together, very, very specifically, very intricately, very carefully, and it creates a beautiful image, beautiful picture. But when you flip to the other side, you see uh, what could look like chaos or mess, but is actually very strategic, and it is all of the cross stitches that you see. Um, if you look, we go to the next image. This is an even, even more clear image of what I'm talking about here. So on the right side is gonna be the front. You have a, an image of a lion, but on the left side, you can see this is stitched here, and it's stitched here, and it's, then it goes over here, and it's just crossed all over on the back side of it. And so what we don't necessarily see is the back side of a tapestry. We're always going to look at the front side of it, and all we see is something beautiful. So when we're looking at scripture, I think we want to keep this in mind, that the scripture that we see in front of us is going to be the beautiful tapestry, 
But on the backside, it is all interwoven so intricately. And all you really need to do is pull on one of those threads. And you start to see, oh, I'm pulling on this thread, which is way over here, but somehow it's connected to way over here. I didn't even realize that was connected. And then I pull again, and then I realize, oh, it's actually also connected way over here. Now, it might be worth looking at these different stories. How are these stories all connected? And then we can get to see the beautiful image of the story before us. So this is something that we're gonna do today, kind of this application of this passage. So I want to just have that idea of this cross-woven scripture, talking to scripture, referencing scripture, illuminating for us today. So we are going to start and read through our whole passage and it is Matthew chapter 17, verses one through 13. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there or look on your phone or it's on the screen. So many options. All right, I'm reading out of the NASB. So starting in verse one. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, A voice out of the cloud said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell down, face down on the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them saying, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. All right, so as you're reading that, a couple of key things might have already dinged off as you were reading and listening. We have Moses, we have Elijah, we know those are big characters in the Old Testament. What does that mean? Seems like some sort of big moment, cosmic moment happened on this mountaintop. Surely there's some significance there. And what in the world did that end passage mean about Elijah and John the Baptist coming first? All a bit confusing, but we're gonna break it down. So going back to that tapestry image that I showed earlier, as we're looking to figure out how these threads are connected, we need to understand how biblical authors thought and wrote. And this scripture that we have in front of us is meditative literature, 
and it's a very ancient piece of literature. It's something that you have to come back to regularly over and over again, just as you, I'm sure, have heard this passage if you've been around the church for a long time, but we can still look at it again and still see something new. And as you read it over and over again, you might pick up a piece and you think, oh, that's interesting, and you turn it over, and then you might zoom into it, get really close, and try and understand all of its really specific details, and then you might zoom out of it and understand its its much broader strokes, and you might start to see design patterns. You start to look at things, pieces that are similar, like I said, the threads that you pull, and then you start to think, well, how are these things similar? How are they different? You can just pick a theme and you start to see this is repeating over and over again. And how can I remember what I learned the last time I read this theme, and how does that inform how I read this theme now? So another illustration to think about this is symphonies. Symphonies do this all of the time. You may or may not know this. Actually, most of you probably don't. I played the cello for about 10 years, something that I loved. And I've played a lot of music. I've played a lot of symphonies. And if you are very familiar with symphonies, let's say there's five movements in a piece. In the first piece, there's a melody, and you hear it. You're like, oh, yeah, that's the melody. It's repeated over and over again. Then you get to the second movement, that melody might slow down a little bit. And then you get to the third movement, and it's kind of faintly there, but it's a little different. Maybe it's a different key. Maybe it switched from major to minor. Then maybe you get to the fourth movement, and you hear that melody again, but it's faster. It's a faster version of the melody. And then the fifth and final movement, you're like, yes, okay, I hear the melody, that's it. I definitely know what's going on. I've been able to trace it through all of these different movements. Another way to think about it is when you hear something, you know what it means immediately. All you need to do is hear a sound and things are just like uploaded in your mind. You're like, okay, I don't need to hear anything else. I already know what I need to hear. And here's an example of one. That's Star Wars. You get it. (laughs) That's Darth Vader. That is just such a significant uh, melody. All you, I mean, you hear it one time and you're like, oh, yep, Darth Vader, that's it. I know everything I need to know. I've now, I've recalled in some sense everything I knew about Darth Vader up until this point. And if you are really nerdy and care at all, you can even, I found it on YouTube, someone has compiled all of the different melodies of Darth Vader and the different ways that it's a little bit different. I was like, is there any way I could play this tonight? And I was like, no, too nerdy. <laughs> Not many people care about this. Um, <laughs> play it. Uh, but it is, it is the, I think, one of the perfect ways to think about tracing design patterns. And they're always a little bit different. It's the same with like the Luke Skywalker theme. You hear it, it's just really faint in the background. And Luke might not even be on the screen, but you hear that and then you're thinking, oh yeah, this has echoes of Luke Skywalker in the background of it. So one of those themes that we'll look at today, as well as one of the themes that is very important and just sticks out, I think, of our passage is holy mountaintops. Now, I've brought this up before in my messages, if you have been here and have heard me speak before, because they are all over. But mountaintops are often holy spaces and oftentimes spaces where God's space and man's space are one. God interacts with someone and has these moments with people and a lot of times communicates to them in really unique ways. 
And so a couple that we're going to, that I just want to reference, we're not even going to go to the passage, but just so that you have it in your mind, one, or I should say two, that deal with Moses. One is Moses interacting with God through the burning bush on a mountaintop where he is telling Moses, go to Egypt, tell Pharaoh, free my people, free the Israelites from slavery. And then another one is Moses on Mount Sinai, which is actually really kind of believed to be the same mountain as he's receiving the Ten Commandments. And in, all, in both of those instances, there could be some level of smoke or fire. The mountain is shaking. It's some sort of cosmic experience. There are elements happening. Um, then another one, so that's just a couple instances with Moses. Another one is going to be Elijah. Notice I picked the two people who are in our passage today. Elijah on a mountain, the Lord passes by. There's a strong wind, a fire. He was not in it. But then Yahweh speaks to Elijah in a still small voice. Now, these are just two kind of mountain interactions that I want to bring to your mind. There are countless others, Noah, the temple, even Eden being a mountaintop. But what is important for us to remember these things before we read our passage is that when the audience was reading these passages or they hear a mountaintop, these things are automatically uploaded. They are the Imperial March of Darth Vader, where you're like, yes, okay, mountaintop, got it. I know what I need to know about this passage because these other passages are actually probably going to help me understand this passage that I'm reading today. All right, now let's go to our passage. Verse one, we'll break it down verse by verse. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up onto a high mountain by themselves. Now the phrase six days later, it's a bit uncommon for gospel writers to be this specific. They didn't always give time markers. And so one reason could just be they're trying to tell you uh, a time frame. It took six days to travel to this new point. Um, But another reason why it could be is just because we're actually thought to read this passage and the previous passage together. There isn't necessarily a break, it's more okay, this happened, six days, now this happened. And if you have been coming and walking through this Matthew series with us, the last passage, or previously a couple stories ago, was emphasizing the fact that Jesus foretold that his death was coming and he would go to Jerusalem to be killed and to be raised again. So we can put that in our back pocket and keep that in mind as we're reading this passage. Verse two, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light. Now we don't really know what transfigured means. I kind of had to take a pause because I I think I've read this passage enough times that I just assume I know what transfigured means, but we don't really know necessarily what that means. We know that Moses at one time, his face was shining brightly when he saw Yahweh, but in this instance, Jesus' whole self was transformed. The key descriptors that we have is Jesus' face shone like the sun. I imagine there's just some level of radiance. I would think it was very splendid, very beautiful. And then his clothes became white as light, that even his clothes were were affected, his whole being. A scholar, J. Bem, describes it as a transformation from an earthly form into a supra-terrestrial. 
Before the eyes of his most intimate disciples, the human appearance of Jesus was for a moment changed into that of a heavenly being in the transfigured world. So these disciples with him, Peter, James, and John, were thought to be kind of his inner circle of disciples, if you will. And this moment of transformation, I think it's safe to say that this was probably his pre-incarnate state of glory, perhaps who he was before he came to be a man on the earth. Continuing on in verse three, and behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him, Jesus. Now these two people, as we already have our themes of mountaintops that we're trying to trace, these two people are also key representatives, essentially, of the Hebrew Bible, of the Old Testament. Moses is gonna be representative of the law, and Elijah is gonna be representative of the prophets. So saying the law and prophets, is kind of a way of referring to the Hebrew Bible. Saying Moses and Elijah, that's gonna be kind of that encompassing reference, if you will. And so law, when you think of law, we're not just thinking of Leviticus or laws that are written. That's kind of what your mind goes to when you think of law. Really, it's more just the, the books of Moses, instruction, uh, the Torah, if you will. That's what the law really is, a much more um, broader term. And the prophets is, not, is also not just going to mean Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, or the minor prophets, um, but is really much more encompassing of some of the historical books. And a lot of this is going to go into how the Bible is arranged in the Hebrew Bible versus our English scripture, which is not something we can get into today. Uh, but what, what you can just know and assume here is that Moses and Elijah is representative of the Hebrew Bible, the Law and Prophets. So in verse four, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So another way you can think about it, Peter's like, hey, this is pretty great. We got Moses, we got Elijah, we got the transfigured Jesus. Let's stay, let's stick around for a little bit. Let's set up camp, I'll, I got it. I'll set up a tent for you. I'll set up one for Moses, for Elijah. Let's just hang out here for a little bit. Uh, and that's just essentially whatever Peter thought the point of this was is not really what the point of this was. But you can't really blame him because he, I think, truly think he recognized this is something special, this is really unique, and it probably would be a good idea to stay. I don't think we should leave this space. I want to be here in this space. And so the word tabernacle even is just loaded. A tabernacle, a place to dwell. This is even going to have references of the tabernacle of where God dwelled in the wilderness, even pointing to the temple where God will dwell. These, this place of stain, Peter is just like, let's just, let's stick around for a little while. Let's set up shop. I don't want to leave. And in verse five, we continue, while he was still speaking, Peter was still talking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So this is while Peter was still speaking, Jesus, or I should say the voice, was not really interested in what Peter thought and what Peter was like, yeah, this is what we should do. Again, Peter's goal in what we should do on this mountaintop is not what God had what his plan was for this. So this bright cloud that came over the area, again, we can 
um, remember sort of that cosmic language of Moses and Elijah's interactions on the mountaintops. Those are echoing in our background. And it's ultimately just this symbol of divine presence. The cosmos were brought down to the earth to create the same experience that was in the tent. The experience between heaven and earth, the same that was in Eden and Sinai, brought here to this earth. And so Jesus, the heavenly guests of Moses and Elijah and the disciples were all brought into this presence of God. So we have the presence of the sun revealed. We have, I think what's safe to say, the power of the spirit, which is this cloud enveloping on this mountaintop, and then the voice of God by the power of the spirit speaking to the son that this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We've heard this before, you don't need to turn there, but just to remember, uh, freshen your memories, because it's been a while since we've been in Matthew chapter three, that when Jesus was baptized, a similar experience, the spirit of God descending as a dove, lighting on him, said, behold, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We also have echoes of Isaiah 42, verses one through three, where God promises his servant will come. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. This term, my beloved, is really just like a messianic title given to Jesus. With whom I am well pleased just gives us this fragrance of he's taking pleasure in the son. The father is delighting in him. And there's this seal of approval given on the earthly mission to the son that the son is embarking on. The phrase, listen to him, echoes Deuteronomy 18, 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, which is Moses speaking, from among you. You shall listen to him. There, if you haven't caught on just yet, this passage is firing on all cylinders in every direction. Jesus is better than Moses. He is the one that would be raised up. He is the better prophet. All of these things are just coming to culmination in this really beautiful, supernatural experience. In verse six and seven, obviously the disciples know this is, this is a, a beautiful moment. When the disciples heard this, they fell down to their face on the ground and they were terrified. Jesus came to them and touched them and said, get up and do not be afraid. I know I can't blame them for having fear as a response to this situation. This fear is representative of reverence and awe. I think it's safe to say I would be afraid. And all I can think is imagining the comforting touch of their teacher, their leader, their friend, bending down, touching, saying, it's going to be okay. He's been with them this whole time. They've been following his teachings. They've been experiencing all of these miracles, this very strange and overwhelming experience now on the mountaintop. Can you imagine what it would be like to have their rabbi say, do not be afraid? I'm sure it was very grounding to have Jesus there. It's also important to note that on this mountaintop, they were in the presence of Yahweh. This is not something that was possible for anyone to experience other than the priests who could enter into the temple, into the presence of God. 
There were so many protocols that needed to be accomplished in order for them to be ritually clean, in order to enter into the presence. They couldn't enter into the holy space, but here we have the wall of his presence had just been opened up to these disciples. They have access to this presence of God through Jesus. He is the presence of God on this mountaintop, but also down on the shore in a boat, also in the crowds healing others, feeding 5,000. What was once limited, this presence of God, to contained spaces is now portable and moving throughout all of the people, through all of the land, giving abundantly. Jesus giving his person, his presence to others. After Jesus tells them not to be afraid, in verse eight, they lift up their eyes and they saw no one except Jesus himself. As suddenly as this awesome experience started, it was over. I can only think that it felt like, now what just happened? <laughs> the cloud was gone, Moses and Elijah were gone, and they were all alone with Jesus. So now as they're processing, verse nine through 13, at the end of our passage, as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them saying, tell this vision to no one until the son of man has been risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, so why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things, but I say to you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the son of man is going to suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood what he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. So let's break it down. Don't tell anyone about this until after the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Notice he doesn't say until after he has died, but after he has risen. This emphasis is on the resurrection and the ultimate goal of Jesus' purpose on this earth. But why keep quiet? This is one of, I, I think it was five or six times that Jesus has told someone, don't say anything, and this is the final time. He says, until after I've risen again. So potentially two reasons that scholars have thought as to why he's telling people to be quiet. One, you could imagine if word gets out that there was some sort of transfiguration on a mountaintop, that if the disciples could barely understand what was going on, what would everyone else think? <laughs> and that's just kind of risky, if you will, to get that information out. And that, I think we can understand that. That makes perfect sense. Uh, but I love this second idea, which is that Jesus didn't want the transfiguration to be the thing that pointed to him as the Messiah. He wanted it to be his resurrection. And I think that's a very beautiful thing and even comes in alignment with Jesus saying, it's going to be the resurrection. It's gonna be the sign of Jonah, this idea of someone coming back after three days. And so it was after the resurrection, where after the, after the Messiah was going to defeat sin and death, that then, the disciples could say, and also get this crazy story that we experienced, which would just further affirm that Jesus was who he says that he was. And then the bit about uh, why the scribes say that Elijah needs to come first. Why were they looking for Elijah? This is actually a reference to Malachi 4, verses four, five, and six about. I won't read it all for you. 
Um, but essentially, Malachi is speaking in this uh, post-exile world. The temple had been destroyed, was rebuilt, and yet the hearts of men are still just as wicked. And Malachi is warning, hey, judgment is coming for those who do not follow Yahweh's commands. And he says, behold, so this is Yahweh speaking through Malachi, behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the people. And so the, uh, the disciples who know their Bible very well, they are looking for this sequence of events. They're waiting. Okay, so we know that Malachi said Elijah was going to come, restore things, and then the Messiah was going to come. And so I think it's safe to say that simply they were looking for something really exact. They were looking for literally Elijah, Elijah to come back and prepare the way of the Lord and then the Messiah to come. I don't think it was that simple. And so ultimately Jesus is saying, well, Elijah did come, he just wasn't recognized. And then I love the very end, uh, Matthew makes it really clear. He says, Dear reader, in case you didn't get it, the disciples then understood that he was talking about John the Baptist. So that John the Baptist was just taking this role of Elijah. It wasn't necessarily that they needed Elijah to come first. But he said, they didn't even accept John the Baptist. How much more are they not going to accept me? Which then goes back to the very beginning when we were talking about how we can keep the passage from a couple weeks ago in our minds that Jesus is just once again saying, just as John the Baptist was rejected, you are looking for Elijah, you rejected him, I am also going to be rejected. So, take a deep breath. We did some deep study there. <laughs> what does this mean for us? What does this mean for our church? What can we do now? Well, one important thing to note is that the kingdom of the Messiah has come. This is something we will not stop saying as we're talking through the book of Matthew. The kingdom of God is here. And as we are considering bringing up Moses, bringing up Elijah, these were people that they thought, this could be the Messiah, is it Moses? He was really close. He was very, very, he was, he was checking all the boxes, if you will. Um, but it wasn't Moses. And then Elijah comes along, or David comes along. Insert any person who you think, this has gotta be him. And then he fails, and it wasn't him. And so we have Jesus. This is my son. Listen to him. So when we think about the kingdom of the Messiah has come, there are so many things that we could glean from that. So many rich truths that can permeate our hearts and our lives. But as I was reflecting on this passage and praying on it, I just kept coming back to the idea of rescue. And so whether it's just that I need to hear this tonight or you also need to hear this tonight, the fact that the kingdom of the Messiah has come includes the fact that we have been rescued. We've been rescued from our own physical bodies that are rotting. I'm sure you can think of someone who is sick right now, who's battling something their bodies are just rotting away. And it's such a sad reality of how sin has just wrecked this world as we see loved ones getting closer and closer to being reunited with their father. 
we have been rescued from this physical world. We have also been rescued from the anxieties of this world. The demand of our world to think this way or think that way, have an opinion on something, consume so much information, know exactly what needs to be known to make the right opinion and take the right stance on something. Otherwise, you'll be canceled. We are rescued from this reality that we can live differently than the world expects and demands us to. We can be rescued from the anxieties of this world. We can also be rescued from our own brokenness and sin. When we take a look at ourselves, we realize, man, sometimes it's the brokenness in my own heart that I just need rescuing from. The parts where I know my life is overcome with selfishness or disobedience, I can be rescued from this. We are also rescued to a different kingdom, the kingdom of God with Jesus as our king, allowing us to live this abundant life. The second thing um, after the kingdom of the Messiah has come, and this is the last thing I wanna leave us with, is that we have access to his presence. This mountaintop experience was a representation of these few people, Moses and Elijah, who were oh so lucky to be in the presence of God. And then these three disciples realized how lucky they were to be and live their lives in the actual communion with God on this mountaintop, so much so that Peter said, let's set up shop, I'm not trying to leave. We have this access even more so today. Whereas the presence of God could only dwell in holy spaces, we ourselves have been cleaned by the blood of Jesus so that we can experience this presence every single day. We are the temple. We get to have the dwelling of the Holy Spirit in us. So if you haven't yet felt connected to the presence of God up until this point, take a moment to do so. Don't miss out on the rest of tonight. On the access that is available tonight, tomorrow, this week, every moment that we can capture to be in the presence of our Father. We'll sing more worship after this. Singing these words of truth just help align our hearts to the reality that we are in his presence. Open your heart to hear from him today. Allow your heart to trans, allow him to transform your heart, teach you something new, challenge you in a new way. Maybe just gaze upon his beauty delight in him, worship his holy and mighty name. So, we will close, take your, close your eyes for just a minute and just sit in his presence. Take a moment to consider what the Lord is speaking to you. What does it mean that you get to be in his presence? What are ways where you maybe have missed out on his presence? being distracted or consumed by something else? What are ways that you can repent, turn towards him, enter into his presence? Let him reveal himself to you. <laughs>